The reading today is the last in our series on John the Baptist. It is taken from the Gospel of John, uh, chapter 10, beginning at verse 22. The unbelief of the Jews. Then came the feast of dedication at Jerusalem. It was winter, and Jesus was in the temple area walking in Solomon's colonnade. The Jews gathered round him, saying, How long will you keep us in suspense? If you are the Christ, tell us plainly. Jesus answered, I did tell you, but you do not believe. The miracles I do in my Father's name speak for me, but you do not believe because you are not my sheep. My sheep listen to my voice. I know them and they follow me. I give them eternal life and they shall never perish. No one can snatch them out of my hand. My Father, who has given them to me, is greater than all. No one can snatch them out of my Father's hand. I and my Father are one. Again, the Jews picked up stones to stone him. But Jesus said to them, I have shown you many great miracles from the Father. For which of these do you stone me? We are not stoning you for any of these, replied the Jews, but for blasphemy, because you, a mere man, claim to be God. Jesus answered them, Is it not written in your law, I have said you are gods? If he called them gods, to whom the word of God came, and the scripture cannot be broken, what about the one the Father set apart as his very own and sent into the world? Why then do you accuse me of blasphemy? Because I said, I am God's son. Do not believe me unless I do what my Father does. But if I do it, even though you do not believe me, believe the miracles that you may know and understand that the Father is in me, and I in the Father. Again they tried to seize him, but he escaped their grasp. Then Jesus went back to the Jordan, to the place where John had been baptizing in the early days. Here he stayed, and many people came to him. They said, Though John never performed a miraculous sign, all that John said about this man was true. And in that place, many believed in Jesus. Amen. We're going to be looking at, at John chapter 10, verses 22 to 42. So if, if you'd like to turn to that, I think you, you might find it helpful. Shall we pray together before we begin? Gracious Lord, you inspired men a long time ago to write 
and they wrote words that were their words, certainly, but also your words. And you have preserved those words and given them, given them to us in our own language so that we can understand. Yet we acknowledge this morning, Lord, that we cannot fully understand unless your Holy Spirit takes those words and completes this process within our own minds, within our hearts, and within our lives. So the understanding that comes through considering your word becomes a lived understanding. And we walk forward in the power of your spirit, fed by your word. May that be so this morning, for we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Does your mind ever wander <laughs> to something that you'll never see and think, I'd love to be there just to watch and to listen? I have to admit mine does from time to time. Because from time to time, I've thought, I'd love to be able to go to my own funeral. And <laughs> I'll, I'll, I'll be, they'll be there anyway, in a sense, I suppose. But, <laughs> but you know, just, just to see what people say, to see how many folk turn up, <laughs> and to, to see what, what things they'll say about me. Do you, t please tell me I'm not the only one who does that. <laughs> Tell me something. No. And of course, uh, some uh, make preparations for their own funeral, as many folk do, and I think there's great wisdom in that. Uh, financial preparations, take out a, a funeral plan. Some folk will choose hymns that they like to be sung at their funeral, or readings, or an order of service, uh, and so on. And some will have chosen what they want carved on their own headstone. Now, this isn't quite so common. Today we're thinking about what John the Baptist would have had carved on his headstone. And we're thinking perhaps about the theme for John the Baptist's obituary in the whatever telegraph it would have been in, in his day. Or we're thinking about what someone would have said about John the Baptist at his funeral. Now, we, we pretty much know the answer to this because John the Evangelist tells us at the end of the chapter, quite specifically tells us. But I want to, to work my way through these 20 verses. At the end, I think it'll be fairly plain what would have been written on John the Baptist's headstone. And the really curious thing about it is that it really wouldn't have been about John at all. Because these 20 verses, or sorry, in these 20 verses, the, the couple of verses at the end that form the, the reason why we're looking at these are simply a passing comment, if you like. The substance of these verses is just not about John. And yet the, that last little verse or two is a very fitting postscript both to John's life and to what I would encourage you to think of as our lives. To think to what extent do we see it the same way as John saw it? To what extent does the obituary, the funeral service, the carving on the headstone 
of our lives reflect what would have been on John's. So let's take a look at the substance of, of these verses. And really, not surprisingly, we've been coming to the same theme every week, time after time after time, looking at John the Baptist. And as we come to it every week, we're talking not about John so much, but about Jesus. And this week we find summarized for us in these 20 verses what Jesus was all about for John and for John the Evangelist and, curiously, for Jesus' enemies who formed part of, of this story. We're going to see three things. The first is, quite clearly, that Jesus claims to be God. Nothing more subtle than that. And everybody recognized it. You can find it in, in those verses that you'll see on the screens. And not only did the followers of Jesus recognize this, but those who stood against Jesus recognized this as well. If you look at uh, verse 33, for example, you'll see very clearly that the, the uh, Jewish leaders are saying, we're not stoning you for any of these things that you've done, the good works that we'll come to in a minute. But we're stoning you because of blasphemy, because you, a mere man, claim to be God. Now, that was their response. Their response was, we're going to stone you. And so we think about the responses that people make to this claim, that Jesus is God. I think broadly there are four responses. And the first is this one. There are those who say, mm, no, not God, but a great teacher. He taught many wonderful things. I'm just reading devotionally through the Sermon on the Mount at the minute, and I'll come back to that in a few minutes. And you read what Jesus taught there. Fantastic teaching. Wonderful ethical, moral teaching. Great stuff. But I suppose as Christians, we have to, to, to be perfectly honest about this, quite candid. What he taught was magnificent. But it wasn't, by and large, unique. Hence the reason why I have a, a non-Christian teacher up there, a Buddhist teacher. Because you'll find in Buddhism and in Islam and in Shinto and Hinduism, and you'll find amongst uh, humanists many of the same things that Jesus taught. For example, things about kindness, things about justice, and so on. So while I think it is entirely correct in the history of the world to see Jesus as a great teacher, we want to say, yes, but that's okay. But it's not what they stoned him for. Well, the second option was that Jesus could have been mad. Anybody who claims to be God, if, if any of us this morning stood up and claimed to be God, we would probably think there's something not quite right going on in there. The connections aren't quite firing as they ought to in this person's mind. He's mad. And of course, people did say that about Jesus. If you look back to verse 20, just before the reading, you'll see exactly that from verse 19. At these words, the Jews were again divided. Many of them said, he's demon-possessed and raving mad. Why listen to him? And again, we have to be entirely honest. There is something mad about claiming to be God, isn't there? Come on, be honest. There is. 
So he could be accepted as a great teacher, or they could have said, as some of them did here, he's entirely mad. Or the next option was that he could be evil or bad. And again, in Scripture, we find that folk did say this about him. The two references that you have there from chapters 18 and 19 in John's gospel are the people who were accusing him, saying to the authorities, he is a criminal. In fact, the NIV uses that word criminal. I think it's, it's chapter 18, verse 30. He's simply a criminal. He's, he's a bad person. And history is full of, of people like that who have claimed some sort of spiritual authority just to do wicked things, to fleece people of, of their living, to rob them, and, and so on and so on. And actually, the combination of mad and bad sometimes, sometimes go together. Um, I, I was reading just last week uh, of uh, an incident in 1978 that some of you will remember. Uh, does the, the name Jonestown ring any bells with anybody? Joan, I'm not talking about Jonesboro uh, across the west of the province. Jonestown. Yeah. Uh, just a quick show of hands just so that, so that I know. Yeah. Yeah. The Jonestown Massacre or mass suicide was when a crowd of around about a thousand people followed a man called James Jones, who was proclaiming his messiahship. And he led them from the United States to Guyana in uh, South America, formed uh, a town there, uh, hence the name. And when they saw that things were not going well, he said that our next move into the brilliant future that lies, that lies ahead of us towards the coming utopia. The next move on our part is for us all to take our own lives, and that will be a fantastic gesture that will lead the world into a new place. His representatives had murdered a U.S. senator and some others just before it, so maybe he saw the writing on the wall. Claims to divinity lead to very, very, very bad places. But then, of course, the last option is the light bulb option, isn't it? The last option is quite simply, yes, he was God. Or as we would prefer to say, of course, he is God. And that's why we're here, we're here this morning. That's why this church was built over 100 years ago and many more like it over almost 2,000 years. That's why people have gathered around the world knowing that to meet in the name of Jesus is to risk ridicule or is to risk persecution or is to risk death. But they still keep on meeting because they and we believe in our hearts that this man, Jesus of Nazareth, actually was God. Nothing less, nothing less, and still absolutely nothing less than that. Well, how do other people respond to that claim? What are the other responses? Let me just give you a few of them. Oh, sorry. Yeah, so who does this offend? Who finds this, this claim offensive? Well, other religions often find it offensive. 
Some will say, yeah, we can go for Jesus as a good teacher, or a God, a godlet, an expression of God. Hindus would, would be pretty much happy with that. Uh, some Buddhists would even be happy with that. But to say that Jesus is God just doesn't run with the other religions. And they are, let's, let's again admit it, understandably offended when we say that Jesus is God. Anybody know that symbol? That's a symbol that was developed recently um, among atheists. It's, it's one of a number of symbols. The great world religions all have symbols. Atheists tend not to have had a symbol, and that's one that's been developed. And so, of course, atheists find it offensive when we say that this man 2,000 years ago was God and continues to be God. And they will say, that, look, that's just nonsense. It's, it's not only nonsense, but it leads other people into foolishness, and therefore it's offensive. So other religions find it offensive. Atheists find it offensive. Here's a man who found another group who found this claim to Jesus' divinity offensive. Some of you will recognize Dietrich Bonhoeffer. And I'm in the middle of reading Bonhoeffer's book, at the Cost of Discipleship. It, it's a bit of a stunner. I really sometimes wish I hadn't started it. He just goes for the jugular every time. Writing in Germany in the 1930s, he's saying quite simply, Jesus is first. Jesus is first. He is number one. He is above all else. He has the sole claim on our lives, and everything else is secondary. Not only is everything else secondary, but everything else is approached through our understanding of Jesus, not just alongside it. Well, who found that offensive? Clearly, it was the, it was the Nazi party, and all of those who were uh, walking along with the Nazi party found that deeply offensive because they were saying, we have first call on your life. And many uh, Christians, uh, many churches at that time were saying, well, yes, we as the national church have first call on your lives, and we will tell you what Jesus is saying. Bonhoeffer said, no, Jesus and Jesus only. Jesus speaking to us out of Scripture is the one who has first call on our lives, and nothing and no one else has first call on your life, your life. And this is where it gets a bit awkward for all of us, because we may not find ourselves in the same position as Bonhoeffer having to, having to stand against the government, and actually Bonhoeffer was martyred in 1945. But there are many other things and many other people who say, we want to be first in your life. Some of them perhaps a, a bit more sinister when a government says it. Some of them much less sinister, and our hearts really warm to this call to be first. It may be an employer who says, I want to be first in your life. It may be a friend who says, I want to be first in your life. It may be a spouse, a husband, a wife who says, I want to be first in your life. It may be a child who wants to be first in your life. It may be a parent who wants to be first in your life or mine. Doesn't it get really quite difficult at that point, folks? 
because all of these people have legitimate calls. I was just sitting down at the side there as the kids were going out. I just watched them and think, aren't they fantastic? Wouldn't you just do anything for them? Wouldn't you really? But they can't be first. My wife, my children, my, well, uh, our parents can't be first. It can only be Jesus. It can only be Jesus. And it can still only be Jesus. Because he is God. He has the right to be first. And for all other things and all other people to take their place in our lives, as we approach them through him, as I am a husband in Christ, as I am a father in Christ, as I am a son or a friend or an employee or a citizen in Christ, because Jesus claimed to be God, And we as his disciples say yes. And we worship you. And we will put you first. Can we have a pause just for a wee minute? Because I recognize for all of us, that may very well be a hard thing to say and to hear. Can I lead you in a short prayer? Okay. Can we bow together for a second? Lord, the impact of your call to be first in our lives hits us really hard. We have commitments, Lord. We do. We have people to whom we're committed, employment to which we're committed, a community to which we're committed. But you have first claim. And so we pray, Lord, help us to accept and to live your priority in our lives. And for anyone whom we know who is struggling with this, we pray for them. Enable them, gracious Lord, to put you first. And then to find things strangely falling into an appropriate place. Amen. The second thing that the passage points us to as evidence of Jesus' claim to divinity, not just his words, but uh, uh, the good works now uh, in, in the reading, and I think in your pew Bibles, certainly in the, uh, in the Bible that, that I have here, in verse uh, 32, we have something like this. Um, but Jesus said to them, I have shown you many great miracles from the Father. Now, do you have great miracles in, your, in the pew Bibles? Yeah? Yeah? Okay. Well, let me t- take you behind that a wee bit. Because it's not the normal word for miracles that we would find in in the first three Gospels. In fact, it's not even the the word that John uses quite frequently for miracles. It's simply the word for works. And so literally what we have behind the word 
uh, miracles there is good works. I have shown you many good works from the Father. And there's more. It's not even just the normal word for good works. It's the word uh, that could very easily be translated beautiful. So, you, instead of translating that, I have shown you many great miracles from the Father. He could, it could equally well be translated, I have shown you many beautiful works from the Father. Lovely things that Jesus did. And so again, we, we pause for a minute and say, well, what are these beautiful works? What are these great, great miracles? What are these, in the words of Matthew, Mark, and Luke, what are these works of power that Jesus does? And it, it, it doesn't take time to, much time to think through these. We know what, what uh, they're talking about, what Jesus is talking about. We know about the miracles, don't we? And we could take a few minutes and work our way through the various miracles that, that Jesus did. And we would find that they, they can be classified in many different ways. Let me just give you one classification. There are miracles of healing. For example, chapter 5 in John. There are miracles of provision of supplies. Uh, bread uh, or, or wine and wine in chapter 2. There are miracles that have to do with the control of nature. In chapter 6, Jesus walking on water. And there's a couple of miracles in which death is defeated. Chapter 11 following this with the raising of Lazarus. So miracles of healing, miracles of provision of things that people need, miracles that show control over nature, and miracles that show power over death. That all sounds pretty good to me. And if you were experiencing these things, Jesus doing these things, surely you'd want to say, yes, those are, those are fantastic. And to be fair to the Jews, they, they are saying, yeah, we don't have any problems with these. The difficulty, of course, was that they weren't interpreting the miracles in the way Jesus intended them to be interpreted. If they had been interpreting the way Jesus intended, they would have been offended. And we can see that by looking back into the Old Testament, and particularly looking at the first five books of the Old Testament. What does God do for His people? What does God do for the people of Israel in the book of Exodus when He takes them out of Egypt and brings them uh, on the journey towards Israel? There are miracles there of, of healing. There are miracles there of provision of food and uh, manna. There are miracles of the control of nature in the parting of the Red Sea. And there are miracles of coming back from death. In other places, literally, other places in the Old Testament, literally, but metaphorically, as the angel of death passes over the houses of the people in Israel, uh, the Israelites in Egypt, they're freed from death. So when Jesus does His miracles, it's not just holding out His hands and doing good things for people. They're all implicit claims to being God. Bonhoeffer makes this point as well, so I'm leaning on him, him again. The good works that Jesus does often have an element of the cross to them. Now, again, if you want me to tease this out a bit more afterwards, I can do that. And if we take that and bring it to our lives, and we say, what good works does Jesus want us to do? How should we be living the gospel? 
Well, now we can do the same things that Jesus did. Well, yeah, granted, not miraculously, but doing them all, if you like, derivatively or on a lower scale. So we bring healing to people as God calls us into, say, something within medicine, pharmacy. If God calls us to be a hospital porter uh, or a radiotherapist, God calls us to healing. Or provision. Yeah, every Sunday we have a basket of provision out there as God says to us, come on, help those who don't have enough to eat or can't find enough to eat. Control over nature. Anybody involved in building? Anybody involved in town planning? Anybody involved in anything like that? Anybody involved in water supply? As we seek to control nature and take the thing, the destructive aspects of it, and bring good. We could get into a debate about global warming, but again, that's, that's something for, for afterwards as well. And the miracle of the defeat of death. Anyone involved in evangelism? Anyone interested in talking about Jesus that we'd be thinking about? It's that again. And that's where it starts to get offensive. You see, all of the other things are good. All of the other things people will look at and say, great, heal, teach, uh, build, supply. But evangelism, that's where people start to get offended. And finally, and, and just briefly, Jesus gives eternal life. What were Jesus' claims? Jesus claims in His words to be God. Jesus claims through His actions to be God. But in verses 27 to 29, Jesus says quite clearly that He comes to give, this is uh, verse 28, I give them eternal life. I give them eternal life. No one can do that except God. That's back to your madness again. Only God can give eternal life. There can be hints of it in all the good things that, that uh, Jesus did through the miraculous works. There can be hints of it in all the good things that He calls us to do in the world around us. But only Jesus can give eternal life. And that eternal life, which is a quality of life here and now, Again, if you stay in, in those verses in, in 27 uh, to 29, I know them and they follow me, present tense. 28, I give them present tense and they will never perish, future tense. No one can snatch them out of my hand, present tense. This is an ongoing quality of life here and now that Jesus gives to His people. And it's an ongoing quality of life that will never end. That fantastically simple claim, no one and nothing can ever take you away from Jesus. No one and nothing can ever take life away from you because Jesus has given it to you and nothing can destroy it. Nothing. And that quality of life and that quantity or, or security of life is a claim that Jesus makes that, that we just rejoice in. Does this offend anybody? 
Well, not surprisingly, it offends other religions again. You think you're the only one who leads people to heaven. Well, what about us? And we have to turn and say, I'm sorry, unless people are coming through Jesus, it's just not possible. You say you're giving people, uh, they say to Christians, you say you're giving people quality of life here and now. Well, what about us? Does following the Buddha not give, uh, give a quality of life? And we want to say, no, actually, look at the evidence and you'll find it doesn't. We want to say to the atheist who is offended, I'm sorry, you may say very nice things, but you have nothing to give. By your own admission, you have nothing to give other than good ideas. And quite frankly, many of your good ideas aren't particularly good anyway, on any measurement. One more group of people who are offended. I'm not sure if these pictures will be terribly clear. Those who say, seek thrills and find life. Those who say, party and find life. Those who say, drink and find life. Those who say, go to events and find life, whether it be sports or other things. Go to, to things and uh, events and find life. Those who say, actually, life is found at the higher end of the scale not in those sort of ordinary things. Culture is life. Those who say, come on, give yourself to your work. That's where you find life. We want to say no. Because if we go back through all of those, yes, they may have a superficial attractiveness. But they're short-term. They're limited. And each of them has a destructive element to it. And maybe that last one is the one that contemporary society needs to hear. So who does Jesus claim to be a giver of life attract? It attracts those who are broken because of their work. It attracts those who have tried all the partying and all the drinking and all the thrill-seeking and found Nah. It attracts those who have attempted to better themselves and found just doesn't work. Because Jesus is the only one who gives life. And John's epitaph, very, very simple. He did, didn't he? Because Jesus is Messiah, God, life giver. Shall we pray together? Gracious God, thank you for the life of the ages that is your life that you have graciously chosen to share with us your humble, fallen creation. Thank you that you've done everything in Christ Jesus that needs to be done and simply wait for us to accept your embrace. And thank you 
for that quality of life that cannot be destroyed by anything that the world can bring to us. By unemployment, or age, or illness, or broken relationships, or poverty, or persecution, nothing but nothing but nothing can separate us from the love of God and the life which is in Christ Jesus. And for this, we thank you, we bless you, and we worship you, our God. Amen. It's our privilege now to come before the Lord in prayer, so let's all pray. Uh, we're going to use, sorry, <laughs> sorry, that was automatic. Um, we're going to use uh, the Lord's Prayer um, this morning to kind of shape our praying. We're going to particularly pray for uh, perseverance for struggling saints. Uh, we're going to pray for evangelism, and we're going to pray for marriage in our church and in society. Uh, so let's all pray. Jesus says, I and my Father are one. Our Father who is in heaven, hallowed be your name. Father, we praise you that we can come to you this morning in the holy name of your Son, Jesus our Lord. Father, we recognize that by ourselves we cannot know you truly. But we've heard this morning the voice of our shepherd speaking, telling us that he is one with you. And so we come trusting those words today. Father, we praise you that in the total unity of your perfect life, there is no rivalry, no difference of opinion, and not even a different set of ideas. And so we thank you this morning that there is nothing that separates you from your son. And therefore, there is nothing that can separate us from your love that has come to us in Christ Jesus our Lord. Father, thank you that you have given us eternal life through Jesus and no one can snatch us from your hand. And Father, we pray that your kingdom might come. Father, we long to see this world become the kingdom of our God and of his Christ. We long that you might be all in all. And so, Father, we ask that the message of the gospel would run and be honored in our society. We pray that our ministers, Frank and Bill, and all our elders would proclaim the gospel clearly and lead us faithfully in obedience to it. We pray that we would be a church that points to the Lord, just as John the Baptist did. And Father, we ask that you'd give us opportunities to point to the Lord Jesus in our everyday lives this week. Please uh, equip us to do that as we think in Life Builders about how we might point to the Lord Jesus uh, in the way that we speak. And Father, we pray too for Christians who feel weak in their faith this morning. Please would Christ rule in their hearts. Help them to look to him. And please give them faith that no one can snatch them from your hand. Remind them that the night is far gone. And the day of our Lord Jesus is at hand. And so, Father, we pray for your will to be done. May we put aside the works of darkness and put on the armor of light. And we want to pray particularly this morning, Father, that your will would be done in the area of marriage. Thank you that you've given marriage as an institution to all societies and peoples. 
Thank you for the clarity that you've given us as your people uh, on marriage's purpose and its definition in the Bible. And so, Father, we want to pray for abusive and violent and sham marriages that give the institution of marriage a bad name in our society. Father, we pray that the sanctity of marriage would be upheld by everyone in our society. And we pray that our legal definition of marriage will remain in line with your definition of marriage. And Father, we want to pray that you'd strengthen Christian marriages, particularly those here in our congregation, that we might model the goodness of your ways to those who are living without you. Help husbands to love their wives, not being harsh with them, not hurting them, but cherishing them, and seeking to present them perfect in Christ. Help wives to submit to their husbands in the Lord, not giving way to fear, not desiring to have them, but doing what is right. Lord, as we order our lives under the gospel, may Christian homes be places of blessing that flow out to others. And Father, we thank you too for the gift of singleness and for those who have been called to singleness at this point in time. Help them to point to the greater marriage between Christ and his people and help them to trust in your unfailing love. Father, we pray that you'd give us today our daily bread. Please give us the physical food and the things that we need for our journey, just as you've given us eternal life in Christ. We want to especially remember this morning those who are looking for work, those who are missing a loved one, those who are in debt, those who are sick, and those who are disabled. Please give them all that they need. And Father, we ask all this, asking that you forgive us our trespasses, as we forgive those who trespass against us, and that you lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. Father, may you make us so ready to listen to the voice of our shepherd, that we follow him all our days and dwell in your house forever. We pray this with hunger and with hope. And so we say in Jesus' name, amen. We're going to draw our prayers together this morning by saying together the, the words of the Lord's Prayer. They, I hope they're going to appear on the screens just now. Is that possible? No, it's not possible. So hopefully most of you know them. We'll use the traditional uh, words and we'll say the Lord's Prayer. So let's pray together. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done, on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread. Forgive us our debts, as we forgive those who trespass against us. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom, and the power, and the glory, forever. Amen.